Gabriella? Hi, Carl. How are you? I'm doing fine. Welcome to A Life in Biography. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let me make sure I have this right. It's Gabriella Marie Kelly Davies. Well, just Gabriella Kelly Davis is fine. Okay, all right. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, yeah, it's much simpler, much simpler. Tell us a little bit about yourself and why you wanted to be on this podcast. Oh, well, uh, I'm doing a PhD in biography at Sydney Uni in Australia. And um, my dissertation is about uh, the choices I made when I wrote the biography of the really the foremost pain medicine pioneer in Australia, Dr. Michael Cousins. And uh, it's very difficult to write a biography of a, um, a doctor and a researcher because of the complexity of the subject matter, you know. So his area was the science of pain medicine, um, which is discombobulating to try and, you know, uh, understand, but then also to translate into accessible narrative for a non-scientific audience. So anyway, so my dissertation is about the choices I made while I was writing that biography. And it covers things like you know, narrative, you know, normal narrative ch uh, choices like structure and interpretation and use of fiction techniques, but also some of the special requirements of writing science biography, which is you know, how to translate the complex medical terminology, but also how to, um, how to integrate the life of a scientist where their life is usually dominated by their career and by their quest, how to integrate that with their personal life and their inner life. Well, that's fascinating. I think that is difficult. I think it's difficult in all biography to some extent. That is, if you're you're writing a literary biography, for example, you're faced with a certain choice. How much do you talk about your subject's work, their mm. novels, their poetry, or novels? And it's tough with biography because you'll you, in most cases, biographies get mixed reviews in the sense that at least with with literary biography, I can say, um, there will be some to say, oh, not enough about the work. Uh, and others who will say, not enough about the life. There's this tricky balance between the narrative and, in a sense, analysis or description of your subject's work, whatever it is. That's right. And I've got a whole chapter in my dissertation on balancing the subject's life, you know, balancing the scientific and the public life with the family life, for instance, uh, and then the interior life, you know, trying to access the inner life of a of any subject is difficult, but it's extremely difficult with a scientist uh, because it's such a complicated, it's such a complicated beast. Was your was your subject uh, as forthcoming in a sense? I mean, was it was he uh, reticent? No, well, he's reserved. So he's reserved about his private life. He keeps things very very private. So it's like a protective outer shell. Um, he was very forthcoming about his career uh, and about the personal narrative of his life as the, the way he wanted it to be seen. Um, but, you know, he was very reserved. So it was very difficult to get below, you know, the, the outer protective layer. So you've done interviewing? 
I did 18 months of weekly interviews with him. And oh, then boy. I, yeah, I interviewed, I interviewed about 50 of uh, pain medicine um, scholars and pain medicine professionals around the world. So he started, oh. his, he started his pain medicine career at McGill University in 1969. And in the, in the early, until then, um, pain medicine was really not a field of medicine. And it was only in the early 1970s that an American doctor called John J. Benica from the University of Washington, um, he really pioneered pain medicine and he brought together um, pain medicine professionals across the world in various dimensions. So, you know, um, doctors, psychologists, uh, physiotherapists, dentists, various people who, um, you know, work in the area of pain. He brought them together in the International Association for the Study of Pain. And Michael was one of the early people who were caught up in the sort of frenzy that John J. Benica caused. Um, Anyway, so he started his uh, his career at McGill. Then he went to Stanford, uh, and then he went back to Australia and established the field of pain medicine in Australia, which was a constant battle because, um, you know, pain medicine just wasn't a field of medicine, and it was se seen as dead end, and it wasn't sexy because people with chronic pain don't really get better because it's a malfunction in the central nervous system in the way pain signals are processed. So it's not like you know, when you have acute pain from surgery or an injury, it gets better. Chronic pain is a long-term malfunction with, within the central nervous system. Anyway, so pain, you know, was dead end. Um, pain centres were located next to the morgue in the basement of hospitals or in, you know, rusty old army huts or in Michael's case, um, it was on a dilapidated old leaky veranda. Anyway, so oh. he, had to, he had to fight hard against all of that to change attitudes and change the priority of uh, pain within the health system. Yeah, I, I think uh, certainly in, I'm more familiar with this country, with the U.S., and, and the, I think until very recently, I think it's fair to say pain wasn't well understood. It wasn't really studied. Mm. Uh, and, and doctors you know how to deal with it. And with, mm. with um, modern pharmaceuticals as well, uh, there was such a concern with, you know, worrying about people getting addicted mm. uh, to various drugs. Uh, so the, the idea of self-dosage, uh, doing it to yourself, uh, you know, I think is a fairly recent uh, innovation in medicine because I think up, up to fairly recently, patients weren't really trusted. I don't know if you that in your experience in your research. Well, um, actually, in America, um, multidisciplinary pain management, which is teaching a patient how to self-manage their pain, and so yeah. through gentle exercise and stretching and meditation and certain psychological techniques, a person can learn to modify their reaction to pain, and they can also turn down the volume of pain signals in their central nervous system, so their experience of pain is less. So in America, that actually flourished in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And there were a lot oh. of what's, what's called multidisciplinary pain management centers where people learned how to self-manage pain. But the, but the private health insurance industry in America, 
doesn't like funding multidisciplinary pain management because it's quite expensive to pay for physio or I think you call them physio physical therapists and yeah. um, you know psychologists. They they'd much rather fund a tech you know a procedure like a nerve block or you know implanting a neurostimulator into the person's spine. And so there's only a few multidisciplinary pain centres left in America now, which is a tragedy. Uh, because yes, I didn't know the, that. Yeah. The whole concept behind multidisciplinary pain management is you don't take opioids. And, you know, there's this massive opioid epidemic um, in America and also in, in Australia and, and in some countries in Europe. Uh, and once you know, once someone learns how to turn down the rampaging, their rampaging, you know, nervous system, um, they don't they don't need to take opioids. They can learn to manage the pain themselves. So your it's going to be, I think, an eye opener for some people in this country and and perhaps mm. in yours as well. That's right. Absolutely, because it really it really does. Um, I mean, what the biography does is it traces the history of pain medicine from the early 60s. Um, I do go back into the 1800s and early 1900s and look at some of the pain management procedures that were done back then. But really, I trace the history of pain medicine from the 1960s onwards uh, across, you know, I mean, the focus of the innovation was in America. Uh, but also Europe and the UK have been very, very much involved. And then Australia. So my, my biographical subject really put Australia on the map in pain medicine. He, um, he was actually president of the International Association for the Study of Pain in the late 80s. And oh. he, he developed Australia's national pain strategy that America and the UK and many countries in Europe replicated. And he also uh, worked with representatives from 64 countries to agree on something called the Declaration of Montreal, which is that access to pain management is a fundamental human right. And so mm -hmm. he, was a, he was a global player as well as establishing the field of pain medicine in Australia. How old is he now? Uh, he's 84. Am I? Yeah. And is he still, so, is he still no, well, he got Parkinson's. So halfway through oh. my project, yeah, halfway through my project, he got Parkinson's. So I was confronted with the most incredible, you know, incredibly difficult decision because um, the pandemic happened while I was writing the biography. Um, and so I had planned a research trip to the University of California. There's a massive pain medicine archive at UCLA. Um, and his, there's a whole box on him and there's, you know, a massive hundreds and hundreds of letters on, um, from all the early pioneers of pain medicine and their letters to him, from him, and I really wanted to understand how they perceived him and I wanted to track, you know, the, um, the progression of the field of pain medicine worldwide. Anyway, so, so the pandemic. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. The pandemic stopped me doing that, um, but then Michael's health was um, rapidly deteriorating and I was offered a publishing contract. Uh, so I ended up publishing the book before I got to North America to the archives. Uh, so it published in 2021, but now I'm, I've just spent a month in America doing all that archival research 
uh, and I'm rewriting the book for my PhD. Uh, and so oh. the version I submit for my PhD will contain all the insights I gain from the archival research. That's interesting. Most people do their dissertation. Well, that was my original plan, but the <laughs> pandemic was in the way. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, yeah. Because, Michael, because we'd done interviews for 18 months, I really wanted him to see the book. Oh, uh, sure. While he, yeah. while he could still read it. And now he couldn't. There's no way he could read it. But I was pleased that it was published um, while he could still appreciate it. But I was, I'm very disappointed that I couldn't do the archival research at, at, um, at UCLA. But also I went to McGill University and uh, at, at in Montreal, um, where Michael started his career, he worked at the Royal Victoria Hospital, which is this Gothic building that was built in, you know, the Victorian era. It's incredibly austere and imposing. But anyway, I really got to walk in his footsteps and the head... Uh, the head of anesthesia took me on a tour around the hospital and he took me to the to the operating theatre where Michael conducted his first um, study on epidural anesthesia, which, and epidural anesthesia was an area where he conducted groundbreaking research and that it, within the pain medicine world, that research, his research was seminal. Anyway, so I got to, I got to sit in the operating theatre where He'd done that research study, and I listened to his um, interview recording of that day when he was doing the study. Uh, and so, when I was in in the operating theatre, I felt like I was him, sitting there, you know, a twenty seven year old, uh, idealistic, ex, you know, ambitious young anaesthetist wanting to specialise in pain. Uh, and even that's now, funny. talking to you. I've still got the goosebumps talking about yeah, it. That's, that's, yeah, that's a wonderful experience. That's the kind of experience was wanted to have. The fact right. that he's gotten Parkinson, is that, Parkinson's, is that part of your story too? It is. Well, I leave that to the epilogue uh, because, yeah. you know, the bulk of the biography. So basically what happened was when he was a very junior doctor, he was only one week, one year out of medical school, he treated two little boys who had burns to 60% of their bodies. And so the experience of treating them, and back then, there was, that was 1964, there were very few options for managing severe pain. And the, the suffering of the boys really haunted him. And so he decided the weekend that he treated them that he really wanted to learn more about pain. And I, that was the beginning of his pilgrimage, really. And so the next year, once he finished his, you know, residency in medicine in anesthesia, he um, he started his training as a registrar in anesthesia. And then when he finished that, that's when he went to McGill. And at the time, McGill was really the world centre of um, research on regional anesthesia and epidural anesthesia. And so that's he met the pioneers of pain medicine there. So there were two, there were two people: a psychologist called Ronald Melzack and a neuroscientist called Patrick Wall, and they developed the gate control theory of pain, which totally contradicted existing theories of pain, and it caused outrage, controversy. But Michael was there at the time when this was all happening. And so it profoundly influenced him. And those and Ronald Melzack and Patrick Wall became his lifelong mentors. Um, and so 
in actual fact, the gate control theory of pain has been proven in you know research that's been done in subsequent decades. But anyway, he was part of this you know ferment in the pain medicine world, and part of that those early years of the the field of pain medicine developing. So that's really the heart of your story. Is, it is, is how yeah. This came about. Yeah. Yeah, and so the the prologue is about the little burn boys treating the burn boys. So I take readers into the into the emergency ward where he's treating the little boys, and you know um, I I narrate it moment by moment um, based on his memories and also corroborated by a nurse that was there. Uh, I take them through what he did to you know to treat them. Uh, and then, uh, and then move on to, you know, his specialising in anaesthesia and pain management. And then I follow the rest of the book chronologically through to his retirement. And then the epilogue is talking about, you know, his Parkinson's and how he's applying his tenacity to um, and resolve to dealing with Parkinson's. That's good. Um, did you have any models for this book? Uh, other other bio biographies or I did you, know, you were just really on your own no I read a lot before I started writing I read a lot of uh, science and medical biographies and the one that really you know really influenced me was Kai Bird's um biography of Robert Oppenheimer and oh, uh -huh. yeah so I mean I know Robert Oppenheimer is a, a physicist and um was involved in quantum theory and all those things but, you know, to me, that was a almost like a blueprint science biography. And, you know, what Kai Bird did was he he really provided a very nuanced, granular um, profile of Robert Oppenheimer looking at the science. Like he and the, his descriptions of the of nuclear physics was, you know, really elegant. And but he really blended it with. Oppenheimer's personality and, and his diverse interests in so many different, you know, in literature and philosophy and music and a whole range of fields. And then he also really inter interrogated the evidence. And so, you know, he went into detail about his studies into the FBI records of Oppenheimer because Oppenheimer was um, accused of being a communist and um, you know, and he went through a terrible ordeal with, you know, hearings about his experiences as, as a communist. Um, anyway, so I really saw that book as a role model. But I also read Charlotte Jacobs' uh, biography of Jonas Salk, who was one of the virologists who developed the uh, polio vaccine. And so her biography you know, also did really help me to frame uh, Michael's biography. Yeah, good examples. Uh, I, I don't know her book, but I do know Kai Bird's book. In fact, I reviewed that book many years ago. Uh, wow. And it is a, a really impressive, impressive work of biography for sure. Now, you're, you're speaking to me in Oxford. What are you doing there? So I'm a visiting doctoral student at the Centre for Life Writing at Oxford. And... Um, so every day uh, we do writing workshops where we workshop each other's writing. Uh, we do tutorials. We do seminars. 
and so the other day I, I had the privilege of going to this little workshop. It's only about 18 of us, I think, with Hermione Lee. And we were discussing the boundaries between fact and fiction. And uh, it was just it was just so exciting. I think it was the pinnacle of my time in Oxford because we really, really examine, you know, what's happening in contemporary biography and the extent to which people are imaginatively recreating um, a person's life and incidents uh, and whether they're inventing or basing their uh, imaginative reconstruction on corroborated evidence. Uh, and obviously, Hermione is very much on the side of corroborated evidence and not inventing. But it was fascinating within the group because we all read out different parts of our biographies that we're writing. Uh, and we really debated whether various examples were invention or whether they were, you know, whether they could get, you know, whether they would be uh, credible and. Um, you know whether the one of the words Hermione used was uh, plausible. Whether whether the um, imaginative recreation was plausible. Um, anyway, so that, that I just I learned so much. Well, that that's fascinating. Um, was there much disagreement in the the class with the examples that were discussed? Real, you know, I think the class probably veered on the side of. Um, imaginative invention Interesting. <laughs> uh, in the examples that they gave. So, the, you know, the question was where there's a gap in the historical evidence, yeah. what do you do? And yeah. we looked at, Miney gave us various, um, various examples of uh, books that had been written uh, where there's imaginative reconstruction um, and, you know, it was actually this, it was very stark, the difference between some of the books. So um, one, oh, I've just, I should have looked at this before I spoke to you, but one of them was on one of the explorers from the Antarctic who, um, it was a bio, there's several biographies. Oh, you, you probably know the guy's name, but I've completely forgotten what it was. Anyway, so there's several biographies of this man who's British, and so he's an iconic figure in England. Um, and one biography was based on absolute fact, and so it documented minute by minute um, this colleague of the explorer finding the explorer's dead body in a tent. And it related it moment by moment, uh, you know, the physical details, uh, the surroundings, all those sorts of things. Where one, another biography that's been written uh, made comment, you know, made emotional comments about how the person who found the dead body might have been feeling. And so you could see this stark contrast between the minute by minute factual account versus the 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 emotion you know the 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 writer's um, really invention of how that person might have been feeling. So the, yes. I think that brought home to me, you know, a huge difference. And even in my own writing, I know that um, you know at times I've written things like he gasped. Well, did he say that to me? Or is that <laughs> me inventing what I thought yeah. he might be doing? 
And so yeah. it really forced me to go back to the re to my interviews and to the recordings of my interviews and to ensure that that's what he actually said. Uh, and, you know, things like um, his heart was pounding against his chest. Well, uh, did he say that or is that me, th you know, imagining what he might have been feeling while he was doing whatever he was doing that was incredible? <laughs> Uh, so it, it really forced me to be honest about um, my own writing and to interrogate, uh, you know, to go back to the interview yeah. recordings and check what he actually said to me and make sure that whatever I've said in the book um, is what he actually said. Well, that's interesting you should say that because lots of, uh, inter uh, lots of from transcripts, they do interviews uh, and then they make transcripts of them and, and they work from the I suppose in many cases they do go back and listen to the interviews themselves. I've always, I've never done transcriptions. What I've done is uh, recorded the interviews uh, and then in a sense uh, used a counter uh, or a digital uh, machine now uh, and essentially index what I've listened to you know, mm. uh, about a certain period in a subject's life or whatever. And then I'll go back and I'll listen to it because I'm interested not only in the actual words, the content, but the tone, you know, how mm. it was delivered, you know, getting at the idea of, you know, did he really gasp or, you know, uh, what what was the sort of the, the feeling behind the word? I became especially uh, sensitive to this, not, not only uh, in, that, in those cases, but when I was doing my biography of, of William Faulkner, the University of Virginia uh, published a, a book called Faulkner Inscription, his uh, talks and interviews with students and faculty. But they've put online the recordings of all those sessions. And so in some cases, there are remarkable differences, not in content, but in the way things, his tone of voice and when people laugh at some of the things he's saying. And that gives you a whole different, you know, notion and context uh, for what that moment in his life meant. And, and That's right. And I mean, that's what I did. I went back because I really listened to the emotion in Michael's voice and, um, and he, you know, his hesitations and the silences. And uh, so I actually depend on the recordings. I transcribe them, but uh, I, I'm looking for the, at the transcripts at vocabulary to make sure that yeah. I'm using the same vocabulary, but I use the recordings to get a sense of their emotion and hesitations and, you know, the silences and the, you know, just the sound. I think the sound, you can hear the intonation of the voice, all of those things give so many clues. And I think that, um, you know, it's so important to really immerse yourself in the recording. And so whenever I, so for instance, when I went to the Royal Victoria Hospital in Montreal, I listened to all the recordings that I did of our interviews about Michael starting his career at, at uh, that hospital and his experiences there and how he felt. But I listened to his voice intently and could feel the emotion. There's just so much emotion. And just talking to you now, my skin's prickling because it, it was so full of emotion. You know, you've got this young doctor who he's basically, he, he said he dedicated his life to reducing suffering uh, for, by tr improving the treatment of pain. 
And so, I mean, I don't know to what extent that is true, um, whether it's a retrospective decision or whether it was made in the moment of treating the two burned boys. But what I know is he worked incredibly hard um, and was relentless to, to, you know, improve pain management. But anyway, so he's got this mission to improve pain management. He's a young, idealistic guy. He's at McGill. He's at the Royal Victoria Hospital. And so listening to his his recordings just brought back all that emotion and he relived the experience. So when I was at, at uh, the Royal Victoria Hospital, I, could, I could just felt like I was with him. And I think mm. that's it's really important to visit the places that are, per, that are of significance to a person and to really immerse yourself in those places and to immerse yourself in the recordings of their interviews because it gives you so many clues to how they were feeling and, um, you know, how it shaped their lives. Yes, that's right, yeah. I, since you're at Oxford and since you, you um, had this class with Hermione, I'm going to give you an example. Uh, I don't know if you're going to see her again, but let's just say that this example is dedicated to Hermione Lee. I'm working on a biography of the actor Ronald Coleman. And this book... Some years ago, I wrote a biography of Dana Andrews, another actor, and his favorite actor was Ronald Coleman, and he modeled himself after Ronald Coleman. And one of the things that Dana Andrews did was, uh, in the local movie house, this is in Texas, Huntsville, Texas, uh, he, he was both an usher and he was the projectionist. And he had an experience with early film, silent film, um, that made him particularly to the camera and to the way, in this case, Coleman approached a role in a movie of uh, Lady Windermere's fan directed by Ernst Lubitsch. And um, this film, Lady Windermere, uh, is one of Coleman's, I think, outstanding performances. And so I'm writing this Coleman biography and I'm thinking about uh, the way that he, he approached acting for the screen and I'm thinking of, and there's a scene in Lady Windermere's fan where Coleman's playing Lord Darlington, and he's very uncomfortable because he's trying to seduce the wife of a good friend. And one of the ways in which he expresses this uncomfortable feeling about what he's doing is by the way he tugs at his cravat. Uh, mm. And he does it, you know, very subtly, a very subtle gesture. And I was thinking about this and what Andrews got out of this. Uh, and it suddenly flashed on me this morning when I was writing part of the Coleman biography. Uh, how do you write up such a scene? I don't know what went through Dana Andrews's mind when he watched Lady Wyndham. But you know what? There's a film called Fallen Angel that Andrews is in. And there's this scene where he's feeling very uncomfortable because he's involved with two women. Uh, and he doesn't, in a sense, know he's going to go and he faces a mirror and he begins to slightly tug at his tie. <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, you could write this as a dramatic scene That's uh, right. if you see what exactly i can't prove 
that Dana Andrews tugging at his tie that he got that from Ronald Coleman. But the mm. temptation of the biographer to write the scene that way, and they'll say, well, Wellison doesn't know what was going through Dana Andrews' mind. And in one sense, they're right. On the other mm. hand, when you live with a subject for years, my Dana Andrews biography came out in 2012. And here I'm writing about Ronald Coleman now. And I'm thinking about Dana Andrews because Coleman was so important to Dana Andrews. I'm thinking, yes, you know, there is mm. a connection here to be made. Well, you know, Stacey Schiff and Richard Holmes and Hermione Lee all say that we spend so much time living with our subject that we get to know them. You know, and Richard Holmes said we get to know the way they they act, the way they think, the way they understand. And um, and so Hermione Lee is is quite adamant that we can we can sense how they would respond in a certain situation. So based on our based on our knowledge of the subject, which is based on years of research, years and years. I mean, I've been working on this book since 2018, and I know many biographers at the bio conference in New York that we both went to a few weeks ago. Uh, you know, there's biographers who were working on, on biographies for 10 or more years. And so, you you know, your subject become, comes to infiltrate your DNA. <laughs> And so yes. you do, yeah. in a way, you sort of, you do, um, you do feel very connected to them. And I, I mean, I don't know if this is in your imagination. I mean, I don't know how accurate it is, but sometimes you can just sense how they would react in a given situation based on how they reacted to similar situations over their lifetime. So I guess, yeah. and, you know, there's always end notes. And so you could always be honest and um, admit to your readers your your thinking. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and you can you can place. indicate that it's a creation. Yes. So, for instance, in my prologue, um, I recreated the scene in the backyard when the two little boys were burned, and that scene was based on what the parents told Michael Cousins and the nurses in the emergency ward. So that's really secondhand information. And so uh, can you use secondhand information? Well, Hermione Lee says if one person says it, uh, maybe you should think twice. If two people say it, then it's a little bit better, but maybe you need three people, people to verify it. But I only had one person plus one person to corroborate it. So do I use it? And so you, it really, you know, makes you think hard. But, you know, David Veltman, I think on your, one of your podcasts, I think it was the Theory podcast, yes. um, said that secondhand evidence, on the spectrum of evidence, secondhand evidence is that the lower end of the scale. But he said if you don't have anything else, then use it. Uh, but Hermione would say, well, yes, you use it, but you have to admit it to your reader that this is yes, the situation. I think, yeah, I think that's mm. it. I think that when you're using, even if you have only one source, you've got your sense of the subject and what other people have said about your subject. Uh, and you have to make the reader aware that, you know, uh, the thing you're going to say may be open to objection. 
mm. uh, to another reading. It's why I, I, I don't like uh, when biographers say something must have happened. Uh, yes, because... I know you don't like that statement. <laughs> I never it's use my, it. I've heard you mention it so many times. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, a anyone who follows me know, knows that sooner or later I'm going to talk about that because yeah, I think it forecloses it possibilities. You know, it, right. it, it, you know, it's suddenly that has to be it. And my feeling is, no, that's not it. That might be it. Mm. Well, Hermione talks a lot about plausibility and asking the question, is it plausible? Yeah. You know, is, is it authentic? Is it credible? Is it plausible? Uh, and so that's a really good litmus test when you're when you're interrogating the data and interrogating what you're writing in your manuscript. Uh, so I think that's it's really good advice. And I think, I think you know, Hermione says if you have if if you're not sure about something, uh, if you're not you know completely sure about the evidence, you admit it to your reader, and then they can make up their mind about their view but by admitting it to the reader you're being honest and we've got a contract with readers to give a truthful account of a subject's life and where we're not sure about something if we admit it at least then they know you know they need to know that we're not making it up that we're not embroidering or inventing and that's, that's the most right. important thing because otherwise yeah. how can they trust us and someone said to me yesterday oh, I never know when I'm reading a biography whether they're making it up or, you know, whether it's the true account. And so I've got a very low opinion of biography. Well, I think if you've got a scholarly, scholarly biographer who corroborates their evidence and uh, admits when they're not sure, uh, you know, you've, it's a much more authentic account of a life. Yeah. Uh, as I often like to say another one of my hobby horses is one biography is an answer to another biography. That is, we check right. ourselves as biographers. Uh, we read something, we read somebody's biography, and we say, well, there's something else. There are errors to correct, or there's new evidence. Uh, it's, it's uh, as I often say, it's cumulative and it's incremental. And it's also how each biographer interprets the evidence based on their own background and experiences and prejudices yes. and, and their relationship to the subject. So every biographer will create a different biography based upon all of those different criteria. Yeah. I actually feel it's a little late. Well, I don't know what to believe. Uh, mm. I guess what I would say to those people is, you know, there are ways of finding out. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> but to someone who, say, watches the film JFK and they say, well, is that how the assassination ha happened? My answer to that is, well, we'll find out. You know, mm, find exactly. out what you can find out. It, it's, it's not as if you're at the mercy of the biographer. If the biographer is honest, he or she is doing exactly what you said. Now, you mentioned David Velt podcast. You have mm. suddenly revealed that you've listened to some of my podcasts. I listen to every one of your podcasts, uh, and in my dissertation, uh, which is the the title of my dissertation is "Choices, Choices, Choices: One Biographer's Experience." I quote you often, <laughs> and um, one of the one of the chapters is on the living subject, and I really like your comments on uh, a few times you've mentioned living subjects and. Uh, 
you said you wished that, um, you know, you'd met Marilyn Monroe, and for instance. Yes. Uh, but you talk about the pros and cons and uh, and also you talk a lot about authorised and unauthorised biography and, where you know, um, that you've never done an authorised biography but you've had the cooperation of the estate or, you know, the family or or the subject. Um Anyway, so yes, I listen to <laughs> I listen to every one of your podcasts, and I I actually get them transcribed so I can study them, and, oh, and think deeply, I think deeply about um, about what you're saying because it's such valuable. There's just so many nuggets buried within uh, you know in your podcasts. Well, thank you, I appreciate that. Well, we're going to have to do this again. Is there something I should have asked you? Oh, goodness me. Uh, maybe you could ask what I'm doing next. <laughs> yes, <laughs> what am, what go am ahead. I doing next? I'm going to, uh, so next weekend, so I'm I'm enrolled at Oxford for the Trinity term and it, it ends next Friday. Uh, so then we're heading to Leipzig to the Bach Festival. Uh, and so I'm very much looking forward to several fabulous concerts of uh, Bach's music in Leipzig where he worked for many, many years. And we're going to Thomas Kierke where, uh, where we're going to some concerts there where he performed, you know, he used to um, uh, play there. So that's a very exciting way to end this trip. It sure is, and it's it's uh, again working like a biographer. Even if you're not writing a biography of Bach, you feel you have to go there. Well, exactly. Well, maybe I will write a biography of Bach. But um, but actually, on your you've inspired me to start a podcast on science biography. Oh and yes. So so I'm going to launch, and actually, it came from a tutorial I did last week at Oxford. Um, we were talking about podcasting. And our, our tutor said that it needs to be on a very specific topic. So I thought, well, science biography, because I convene a group for bio on science and medical biography. So every month, uh, people who write, doc, you know, biographies of scientists and doctors meet via Zoom. And uh, we talk about science biography and just whatever, you know, we just, whatever comes up, we talk about it. And every every conversation leaves me as high as a kite for the rest of the day. But anyway, I thought, well, I could interview all the people in my um, group. And then uh, once I finished my PhD, I could write a book of interviews with, bio with science biographers because no yeah. one's done that. Uh, and so you've inspired me to start this podcast when I get back to Australia. And then that'll be the beginning of the book that I write on science biography. So thank you, Carl. You've been my inspiration. Well, you're welcome. My my pleasure. I'm I'm, I'm really so uh, it's just been a delight talking to you and learning about a new subject and learning on about how you handle biography and the the various ways of doing it. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, and I hope you have a lovely evening. Oh, no, you're 11 o'clock. You must be 12 o'clock by now, so you have a lovely it's, afternoon. It's time for me to eat lunch. Great. Enjoy. <laughs> okay. I will, Bye, I will post. Yes, I will post this shortly. Goodbye. Okay. Thanks so much. Sure. Bye-bye.